Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. going to turn to God's Word together, the book of Second Samuel this morning. Will Allen, our assistant minister, will be pre- preaching in just a moment. And we're going to have our reading in two parts today. You'll see it printed there on page 5, Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 17 is where we will begin. And that's page 258 in the Black Bibles, page 258, or large print 304. There are Bibles on the windowsills, seats in front of you. Uh, if you need to get hold of one. I'm going to read through to the end of verse 11 in chapter 6. Will will read a little bit more for us when he comes up. Let's hear the word of God together. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezir. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres, and harps, and tambourines, and castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. That place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. 
He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Amen. And we'll turn back to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we'll finish our reading. I'm going to start at verse 12 and finish in verse 23. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed in the, house, the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. And covering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, and as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this and I'll be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is God's words to us. Uh, now today's words from, word from God himself is all about his, his life-giving presence uh, coming to dwell with his people. And actually, that's, that's what the whole Bible um, is about. The whole, the whole of history, it's the story of God being with his people. It's, it's what we're made for. It's what we're made up for, to be with God himself, to know him, to enjoy him in all his fullness. It, it starts with, with him in the garden with his people, and it ends with him in the, the midst of his garden city for all time. It's, it's, in, it's incredible. God with us. Now, we've just started Advent, these these four weeks that the the church has traditionally looked back to the waiting for Christ's first arrival, Emmanuel, God with us, to then look forward to his second, when Emmanuel will be here permanently. It's the 
the deep, profound truth that God seeks to dwell with his people, Emmanuel. And this, this isn't just a, an abstract thing. It, it, this reaches the depths of human experience and life, our, our most important spiritual longings and desires, because it's what we're made for. Let me show you, in our, in our passage today, God in the Old Testament, gave a, he gave a marker of his presence, the Ark of God. It's a large uh, wooden box with angels carved above it. And, and as we're going to see, he, he wasn't contained by this, this box, but it was seen as his footstool. It's where the, where the ark was, in a sense, God touches earth. And, and God's presence can bring extraordinary blessing and joy. We see that just in 6 verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And what happened? Well, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his households. God's special blessing presence, it brings life, it restores and heals, it, it brings, if you know, it brings assurance deep down and, and acceptance. He, he brings purpose and hope to us. He brings joy through knowing him and his life. How do we have that presence in our lives? In short, he's, he's light in the darkness. You know, that feeling of coming into a dark house. A bit, it's a bit unnerved by the, by the quiet, perhaps. Not sure what's in front of you. You're going to trip on a, the odd shoe or something. And then you switch on the light and all is well. It takes away the fear. Or perhaps think of it like when dawn breaks on a dark night. Hope. It comes in the morning, doesn't it? As we worship God in his presence, so light uh, breaks into our lives. And the glimmers of light now that we experience, well, that is nothing compared to the ending. Just see the celebration of it all when the ark reaches Jerusalem. Now, verse 16, David is leaping and he's dancing before the Lord. Then verse 18, and when David finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. It's, it's a party. It's a feast. It's celebration all culminating in a meal together. Imagine the noise, the singing, the shouts, the laughter, the, the smell of wonderful food. You know, the taste of a cake cooked by the royal chefs themselves. Hugs with old and new friends. This is where it's all heading. It's joy before God. Joy before God himself. Celebrating, eating together. Fellowship. It's eternal life. It's a glorious ending. And that's where our history is heading. This is a picture of the new creation. Celebration because God is with us. You know, the glimmers of light have become as bright as the midday sun. It's beautiful. It's all-encompassing light. But we know that is not the whole story of what we read, was it? 2 Samuel 5 and 6 is not just a couple of verses of celebration. Um, And it's not a couple of verses because God's people forget what kind of God they're dealing with. What kind of God is actually coming to dwell with them. Yes, God's presence brings joy. But he's not some lucky charm. It's not as simple as that. I mean, first of all, why wasn't the ark in the midst of them in the first place? Well, that goes back to 1 Samuel 4. Um, when Israel thought they could bring the ark onto a battlefield and just win a great victory against the Philistines. They used God like a trophy, like a, like a God with a small G, you know, who, who does what they want. God, we're taking you to the battlefield, so you must win for us. 
But God isn't like that. His glory is worth much more than that, as we're going to see. So the, the ark gets taken by the Philistines. 30,000 soldiers are killed. Eventually, it makes its way back to the house of Abinadab, and there it stays. It's nearly forgotten about. Far, far from the worship of the tabernacle, far from the worship of God uh, that he had instituted back in the book of Exodus. And here in 2 Samuel, God wants us to see something really important. If if you want to know God, if you want to enjoy his presence and have uh, him with us, then we've got to realize what God is like. And it's this, you, you cannot tame God. You cannot tame God. Now, that might sound a bit strange, so let's get into the story and see what I mean. 5 verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. So David, as we saw last week, he's the new king, and his, his enemies, they're straight out to get him. God has put his king on, in Zion, and the nations are, are turning against him. They take on God because they've taken on his king. And, and it's, it's quite sweet, if it wasn't so awful, that they bring their idols to the battlefields. That they're ready, you know, they think, we can take on this Lord, Israel's got nothing on us. You know, and actually it's like me going to an international rugby game, wearing a gum shield and a head guard. And, uh, um, but what's that going to do against a six foot five, 18 stone athlete? Nothing. They turn up with their idols and what happens? Well, the Lord breaks out twice. Verse 20, and David came to Baal-perazim and, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. Like a breaking flood. It's like a, a torrent of power and might that no army could stand against. It's devastating. Then again, end of verse 24, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. The Philistine army is just struck down. It's like a mighty axe to a tree, chop and then crash. The Philistines think God is just some small little parochial gods. We've got our idols, you've got our idols, we'll kind of see who wins. But the God of Israel is not like that. It's not like some kind of third league team. He's the God of power who can defeat any army. To set yourself up against him, now that is a dangerous thing to do. And David remembered that. He didn't act like Israel had done when they lost the ark all those years ago. No, both times he inquires of the Lord. He asks, what shall I do? And he obeys God. He submits to his commands. He knows his God isn't some idol that does his bidding. He isn't a pet. He isn't a lucky charm. He's the, the great God of over all the nations. God is the one in charge. You know, it's like when your CEO turns up into your office. You don't tell him what to do, do you? You listen, you act. You can't tame gods. But then David forgets it in a really crucial time. 6 verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Now, in first reading, you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? You know, David, he gets the ark, he puts it on a new cart. That sounds good, doesn't it? There's honor there. 
You know, I don't know what a new car looked like in those times, but perhaps it had all the bling. You know, alloy wheels, a real spoiler, a, a fresh link of, of paint. You know, maybe it had the, the most stacked ox pulling it, you know, two ox power cars. But, you know, surely God's going to be proud of that. No expense spared. And not surprising, verse 6, David and all the house of Israel, they're celebrating before the Lord. We've got the ark, we've got God, we've put him in a new cart, we're bringing him home. Perhaps they're singing, he's, he's coming home, I don't know. But David had forgotten, you can't tame God. You can't put yourself in charge. He's the one in charge. Because God had told them actually exactly how the ark should be moved. Not in a nice new cart. Not like the Philistines would have done. No, actually just simply with poles, two poles, and carried specifically by a specific group of priests. Simple as that. But David, he stopped listening. He stopped listening to the one who's in charge. And we see this really dramatically with Uzzah. Verse 6, and when they came to the, fresh, the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. What an extraordinary moment. It can feel like such an easy mistake. The, the oxen stumble. Uzzah, standing there, sees the ark toppling, and rather than see it damaged and touch the ground, he quickly reaches out to save it. And he drops to the ground dead. Notice the language. God strikes him, just like he did the Philistines. God breaks out against him, just like he did against the Philistines. You cannot tame God just because you've got the ark. Because you think God's on your side. You know, he doesn't mean he's under your bidding somehow. Uzzah, he forgot the extraordinary holiness of God. He thought, me touching this box, it's much better than it touching the ground. He forgot the, the glorious holiness of God and his, his own sin. He trifles with God. He treats him lightly. He thinks, God's just like anything else. He needs my help. But God isn't like that. He's not safe. He's not tameable. You literally can't keep him in a box. If God is like light, well then, when he meets our sin, he's like a blinding flash of lightning, like an all-consuming forest fire, sweeping through in destructive power. He cannot be in the presence of our sin. He cannot, we cannot see God and live. This is our God's. This is our God. This is the God whom we've come to meet this morning. The God we've prayed to. The God we've sung to. The God we long to be with in the future. You know, no wonder C.S. Lewis chose a lion for Aslan in the Narnia books. We can't tame him. And so if we... If we can't tame God, then we've got to say it. We, we cannot, none of us can come to him on our own terms. This is David and Isaiah's mistake. They think they can do things on their own terms with a new cart. And it's foolish and it's dangerous. And we do the same. We think we can come to God on our own terms. Perhaps, perhaps you've come here this morning 
And you've thought, sure, I'll worship God. I'll come to him. He probably just wants me here. You know, I've been pretty good this week. I'm actually a good person. And that's what makes me acceptable to God. He'll welcome me into heaven, no props. Or perhaps you think, God, he just accepts everyone. His love is so unconditional. He doesn't care about your sin or your heart. Everyone welcome to the throne room of heaven. I've I've heard people say, I like to think that God loves me just the way I am. That's trying to tame God. It's trying to put him in a box. Just the shape and size I want him. We want God to do things on our own terms, forgetting he's not our pet idol. He's not like a genie to do my bidding, you know, to give me my three wishes. That's a dangerous thing to do. You cannot tame him. He's utterly holy and free. His wrath is destructive in the face of sin. Now, for those of us who know we come to God on his terms, terms we're going to see in a moment that that we come through his son, well, there's still a danger for us, still a danger that actually we treat God lightly, irreverently. We we think of him more like a a mate than an all-consuming fire. Now, incredibly, God does call us his friends. Isn't that amazing? But it's God who says that. He is still pure and holy. He's still other to us. And yet we can tell him what a life of worship should look like rather than listening to him. You know, in church, I'm, I'm going to bring my special rituals and my new actions to help us all worship God. Or we can do it in our personal lives. We, we stop listening and we belittle our sin. God, I think actually taking this job, which involves systematic lying, will be good for the kingdom, whatever you say. Well, God, I think actually sleeping with my boyfriend is the best way to love him, whatever you say. And it's a dangerous game, isn't it? We cannot tame God's. We can't make him fit our plans. Our sin matters, and he is the Lord. And so we're left with the question, verse 9 David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord's come to me? How can he come to me? That's the question, isn't it? If, if this is God, then how can his presence come to us at all? Well, even if you can't tame him, you can trust him. You can trust him. God hasn't stayed distant. He, he has his ways to bring us close. He's spoken And finally, God's people listened. Verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. What did David do? He went back to the law. He went back to God's word. Firstly, they went to Exodus to see they needed poles. This time, uh, uh, in this second account, there's no mention of a cart or oxen this time, is there? Instead, there's people bearing the ark. Now, we know from Chronicles that it was the priests, as God had said, priests carrying the ark on poles. They stopped being like the nations. They stopped thinking they could touch uh, touch the ark and treat God irreverently. They went with God's ways. And then secondly, they went with sacrifices. Verse 13, David sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And then in verse 17, 
Once the ark had arrived, they then offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, what's going on here? What are these different sacrifices and what do they mean? Well, if we go back to Leviticus, which teaches us about those sacrifices, we, we see God has an order for his sacrifices, especially in Leviticus 9. If he is to be with his people, there's an order. First, there's sin offerings, offerings for sin. Then there are whole burnt offerings and then peace offerings. So this suggests that this ox, this fattened animal sacrificed right at the beginning, that is a sin offering. Because then once the ark arrives, we get the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. David has learned he needs to trust God's. He needs to trust God's ways. And what's the way for God to be with his people? Well, there needs to be a sacrifice for sin. God has a way of dealing with our sin. God has a way of taking it away in the face of his purity through a sin offering, through an animal dying in your place. You know, people would place their hands on the animal, symbolizing sin being transferred to that animal, and then the animal would die. God doesn't say, actually, you're, you're really good, you're fine. You know, or, or nor does he say, sin is just not a big deal, it's all okay. No, he says, you are sinful, and sin really matters, but I'm going to get rid of it. Isn't that incredible? God's got a way for us to be with him through a substitute. The substitute takes the sin, and in a sense, God breaks out against that substitute instead of the people. We can't tame God, but we can trust him. He has a way. Sacrifice leads to fellowship. Somehow in the sacrifice, he, he clears away everything he can't tolerate. Now, I've been at an event at a school where, where someone uh, was coming with a, a, an orange allergy. And it was so serious that even oranges anywhere on site would, would bring about a reaction. The essence in the air had an impact. So the whole place, it was utterly rid of oranges. You know, it was an orange-free zone. None hidden away. None were secretly in the store cupboard somewhere. And, and through sacrifice, now God, God doesn't get rid of oranges, of course not. But he's getting completely rid of our sin. It's a totally sin-free zone. And what's the result? The ark comes to Jerusalem. That's the result. God with us. God dwelling with his people. And then there are these whole burnt sacrifices that which were signs of God's people saying, we're full out for you, God. And that peace offering signs that God and people were having fellowship together. And then the people have this feast. They, they celebrate God's life-giving presence has come to his people. And the, the ark has arrived and the party begins. God has a way. Not only is it foolish and dangerous to do things on our own terms. We don't need to do things on our own terms. That ox and fattened calf. Now we know they, they point us forward. As many of you will have guessed to the, the true sacrifice of sin. Not an animal. But the son of God's. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our substitute, the one who, as he died on that cross 2,000 years ago, God's wrath broke out against him. That's how he dealt with our sin. Jesus becomes sin for us. What incredible love. God isn't, he's not satisfied with leaving us separate from himself. 
He isn't satisfied with leaving you and me distant, leaving us to face his wrath. He wants us to enjoy his presence. He wants us to find joy and blessing with him. He loves his people celebrating with him. He wants you to be in his life-giving light. And so we've got to trust him. We've got to keep relying on God's way of sacrifice, the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Animal sacrifices could never really take away the sins of people. We needed Jesus, the God-man, to die in our place. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, you're very welcome. And this is at the heart of why we're Christians. We're not Muslims or Jews or any other religion. We believe that God is because God has provided a sure and real way for us to come to him through Jesus Christ. We're not presuming on his kindness or terrified that he might, we might never receive it. No, we're like David. We're, we're trusting God's way of sacrifice, relying on Jesus Christ to bring forgiveness for all we've done wrong. So if God is uh, untamable, holy and pure, but has made a way through his son, well, well, what does trusting him look like? Well, to finish, perhaps a helpful, although perhaps a strange image, is that we come to him dancing on our knees. Okay, dancing on our knees. I know strange, but as this story concludes, what we see it's the, the humble who enjoy God, not the proud. Those who are dancing are those with humility, those who are, in a sense, on their knees. And we see it starkly in this contrast between Michael and David. So verse 20, and David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today and covering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, and as one of the the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it's before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I'll be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, what's going on here? Well, sorry. Um, well, before we get into David's humble attitude, it, it's worth just to comment on Michael's accusation. Now, to our modern ears, it does sound like David was revealing things he shouldn't as he was dancing. It's a bit stark. Well, now, we are told he was wearing just a linen, ephod, a linen ephod. Now, that's probably, it was very just a simple piece of clothing that the, the priests would wear. But whether he was actually naked before people, it's difficult to tell. Because Michael, she might just be outraged that David could have been, and you know, that he should have been and could have been dressed like a king. That's what she should, he should have been. Royal robes, jewels, regalia. Instead, he's just like a commoner. He's like a normal person, shameless in a sense, even before slave girls. But whatever was going on, we're meant to side with David here, aren't we? Michael is described as the daughter of Saul both times, not the wife of David. And she ends with a sad end, perhaps through God's hand or through the fact that David no longer slept with her. We don't know. So instead, we're meant to see what matters to David here. And the big phrase is before the Lord. It repeats a number of times. Everything he did was before the Lord. 
And before the Lord, he cared about God's honor above his own. Michael's comment, it's dripping with sarcasm, isn't it? How the, the king has honored himself today. In other words, you know, David, he's like an honor disaster that day. Kings don't behave like this. Kings act with dignity and composure. Kings are regal and exude power and authority. David's dancing like a man unhinged. He's leaping and singing. But what do you know? David, he doesn't care. He's not bothered. You know, because he's, he's doing it before the Lord's. He, do, he doesn't care for his own honor, but God's honor. He wants God to be magnified. He wants God to be glorified. He's just ecstatic that God has come at all. He's dancing on his knees. And it's because it's only God's opinion that matters. David, he's, he's willing to become the lowest of the low in people's eyes. Because he knows he's before the Lord. God's honor. God's opinion. That's what matters. And it's here. It's here that there is joy and freedom. It's humility that leads to joy. Pride, it just leads to misery. Let's be Christians dancing on our knees. Because let's be honest, especially, especially in our culture, we didn't become Christians actually to bring honor to our own name, did we? You know, being a Christian, it's about bringing glory to our God, bringing honor to his name. It's about living before him. And as we do, there's, there's such freedom and joy for us. Because it means we don't have to make a name for ourselves. We don't have to be, uh, you know, we don't have to have people look at us like we're the bee's knees. It's okay if we get overlooked. It's okay if we're not cool. It's okay if, if, if living for God doesn't fit with the world around us. You know, coming to a church on a Sunday rather than heading into town or a sports match, you're going to stand out. Or, or, I don't know, not getting drunk while your mates are out on the floor or, or, or doing family like differently in a way that centers around God and the good of your children. These things are going to make us stand out and not in a way that people like. But you know, we're doing it before the Lord. We care about his opinion, his honor. So we, we don't need to big ourselves up and, and tell everyone how much we've done. Because we know in his presence there is joy. In his presence there's dancing. In his presence we're blessed. Nothing can take that away from us. Nothing can beat that. Everything fades into insignificance if God is with us. That's what David understood. And that's where we're heading. A future with God himself. A future we're actually going to be forever dancing on our knees. We can't tame God's. But we can trust him. Amen.